This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 90 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and today my guest is one of the most beloved actors and filmmakers in the world, Rob Reiner. The 69-year-old is the son of the legendary Carl Reiner, but made a name for himself playing Meathead, the liberal son-in-law of conservative Archie Bunker on Norman Lear's groundbreaking show All in the Family from 1971 through 1979. And then, starting in the 80s, as a director of instant classics, including This is Spinal Tap, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, The American President, Ghosts of Mississippi, and The Bucket List. His most recent film, LBJ, a drama about the 36th president of the United States that stars Woody Harrelson, premiered last week at the Toronto International Film Festival and features a blend of the humor and politics that have been so central to Reiner's life. It's also a fascinating work to watch as we head into a presidential election in which civil rights, voting rights, racial tensions, and other matters dealt with in the film are once again at the forefront of the national conversation. Over the course of our conversation, we talk about a wide range of topics, from what it's like growing up as the son of a person famous in the field you also want to enter, to how Norman Lear, years before All in the Family, recognized talent that not even Rob's father could see, and years after All in the Family, saved Stand By Me, why he co-founded the production company Castle Rock Entertainment, which has been his home since 1987 and which has produced not only his work, but also a lot of other things, including Seinfeld, how his late mother, Estelle, wound up delivering the most famous line in When Harry Met Sally, how he wound up rewriting Aaron Sorkin on A Few Good Men, why, starting in the late 90s, he largely dropped off the film scene, what it's been like to sporadically return to acting in recent years in projects including The Wolf of Wall Street, and what his thoughts are on the 2016 presidential election, about which he has no shortage of opinions. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Mr. Reiner, thank you so much for doing this. Scott, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So we always begin on on this podcast just asking for the record, where were you born and raised? And I don't have to ask Part B, what did your folks do for a living? But Part A, at least. I was born in the Bronx in New York City, March sixth, nineteen forty seven. And when did you move west? Well, first we moved to New Rochelle which became the uh, location for the Dick Van Dyke show, yes. where the Dick Van Dyke show was located. And we moved west. I was 
almost 13 at the time, and it was like in uh, 1959, I think it was. What's it like growing up as the son of Carl Reiner? Was it something that was exciting or intimidating, or did you, know, did you like it? Did you resent it? How did you feel as a kid? All of those things. <laughs> I've always you know, made this analysis, but it's true. You know, when you're growing up as a kid, you don't think that your house is any different from anybody else. I mean, this is what you're used to. Right. And it wasn't because in my house, there was Sid Caesar and Norman Lear and Mel Brooks and all these people. And it wasn't until I would, you know, go over to my friend's house, I realized it, it, things weren't quite as funny over there. So it was funny around my house. And it was also exciting and fun. And I was drawn to it and also very intimidating. And I, there's a story that uh, my mother told me, I don't remember it, but she said that when I was eight years old, I went up to them and I said, I want to change my name. And my father was all upset because he thought, oh my God, this poor kid, he has to live up to the Reiner name and you know, all of this. And he said, well, well, what do you want to change your name to? And I said, Carl. (laughs) So I thought, you know, uh, you know, I wanted to be like him. I wanted to do what he did. And I looked up to him and I admired him so much. Now, interestingly, though, from what I've read, the first person that saw real talent in you as a performer was not Carl Reiner, but somebody else, right? Yes, Norman Lear, actually, was the guy who, again, I don't remember this, but he tells me I was playing jacks. It's a little game that you play with a rubber ball and these metal jacks with his daughter, and I was about eight years old, I guess, and I was explaining how jacks was played, and I was giving her the the instructions and the rules, and I was doing it apparently in a very funny way, <laughs> and he went to my father and said, hey, you know, your son, he's really funny, this guy, and my father said, well, that kid? No, <laughs> that kid is not funny. He sits in a corner and broods, and he's uh, depressed, you know, right. he's not funny. So from your own point of view, how early on did you know that that show business of one form or another was something that you wanted to pursue? Well, when I was a teenager, during my summer vacations, I would go with my dad every single day. I think when I was 14, 15, 16 years old, I would go every day to Desilu Cahuenga, which is where they shot the Dick Van Dyke show, and I would spend all day there. So I was fascinated by it even then. I mean, I just sat around and watched how the actors were staged and how they used the cameras and how my dad reworked the scripts and all that stuff. But I sat quietly. I never, you know, I wasn't like a, you know, I always thought I would be annoying to my dad, you know, (laughs) that I would be annoying because, you know, he's got this kid hanging around, but I kind of just stayed out of the way. Only once I heard though, right? Did you give somebody a little pinch? Well, I did. I did. And this is, I'm not telling tales out of school (laughs) because it's true. I did grab Mary Tyler Moore by the ass. And, <laughs> and that was a no-no, but right. I couldn't help myself because, you know, I was about 14 at right. the time. and You got it out wore, of your system. Well, she wore those capri pants, you know, and she had the tight capri pants, and she was like 24, 25 years old, and she had the greatest tush, you know, and I just had to. The, you know, there's a Jewish expression, the dibbik, you know, it's a, it's a devil, it's a devil. Right. I was possessed was by a- the devil, the dibbik. So now... In terms of actually acting upon your interests, was it summer breaks? Was it after high school? When did you actually begin to work? Well, I started, you know, when I was a senior in high school, I got into the drama class. And it was the first time I felt comfortable with people. Because up until then, I was like, I liked sports, you know, and I was into sports. But I didn't really relate to a lot of the guys who were in sports, you know, so much. They were kind of, you know, not such geniuses, maybe. (laughs) But, I mean, I got with the, uh, in the drama class, and there were a lot of kids that I could relate to. I mean, and particularly in Beverly Hills High School, there was, Albert Brooks was in my class, and Richard Dreyfuss, (laughs) and uh, Julie Cobb, who was Lee J. Cobb's daughter, and... Melinda Marks, who was Groucho Marx's daughter. And so I felt comfortable. So when I graduated high school, I was 17, yeah. and I got a job in a summer theater in Plymouth. And it was, uh, no, it was actually in Bucks County. Mm-hmm. It was the Bucks County Playhouse in uh, New Hope. And I was, you know, I was an apprentice. I painted scenery, built sets and stuff like that. And that was my first interest in, in, in show business. And other than that pre-Meathead, I mean, now we should note, that happened, you were only 23, right? When right. That, so right. it's not like there could have been a lot before that. I, I'd read that you'd done some writing, you'd done some Well, I did, I did a lot, actually, before yeah. that, because yeah. then I went to UCLA. I yeah. was in the theater arts department at UCLA. And then I went, when I was 18, and that summer, I went and, and played in a 
in a stock company in, in Plymouth, Massachusetts, the Priscilla Beach Theater, and I was an acting a member of an acting troupe, and I did that. I did a number of plays, and then I started my own improv theater group when I was at UCLA. I was 19, and I was with Larry Bishop, and mm-hmm. who's Joey Bishop's son, mm-hmm. and Rick Dreyfus, and we started this group called The Session, and we had our own theater in L.A. for a year, and so I did that, and then Larry Bishop and I broke away, and we started our own double act, and we got booked into The Hungry Eye up in San Francisco, and so I was doing things, and then I started getting parts, you know. I I dropped out of college. I went three years to UCLA, and I dropped out because I started getting parts. And these were on... Big shows, right? Oh yeah, no, I was on, uh, I was on uh, Gomer Pyle, I was on That Girl, yeah, yeah. I was on the Beverly Hillbillies, you know, a lot of really great shows. Now, the thing that I, I wonder, not having had this situation myself, but I would imagine that coming up in the business when you're when your father's a, a big person in the business, there's probably some element of concern that people will say, oh, there's nepotism or whatever. But you, I mean, I, every indication that I've ever gotten an include, and I want to just read something that your dad said, which was, quote, Rob was a self-starter. He never asked for money. He never asked for introductions. Even though he was born into a show business house, he really did it all by himself, close quote. So was it very important to you to establish that early on, that you were you were on your own here? Yes, I, I knew that there was going to be comments about nepotism and all that. But if I knew the truth, mm-hmm. if I knew that I had never asked for a dime, I never asked for a dime from my parents, I went and made my own way, I knew what the truth was. Right. So that's all that mattered to me. And, you know, I never asked him for help. I never asked him for advice. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until I was 19 and I directed a production of No Exit at the, the, the theater, you know, in, in L.A., and Rick Dreyfus was in that production as well. That was the first time I got any kind of approval from my dad. And right. I had done a number of things up till that point. And he came up to me and he came backstage and he said to me, that was good. Wow. No bullshit. <laughs> he just looked me in the yeah. eye and said that. Yeah. And that was the first time he validated what I what I was trying to do. And then I remember going to visit him at his house the next day. And because I was living with, you know, I had an apartment Mm -hmm. with Larry Bishop. We were living in a place in in Hollywood. And I I went over to the house and I sat down with him and he and he said to me, you know, I'm not he said, I'm not worried about you. He said, you're going to be okay. Whatever it is you want to do, you're going to be okay." And that was a big thing for me at at age 19 to get that kind of approval from him. Well, one of the next big things would, I would imagine, be all in the family. How did that first cross your radar, and how quickly was it clear that it was special to you? Well, you know, before all the family, I, I like I said, had an improv yeah. group, and then I was in the, another group called a committee, and then I was a writer on the Smothers Brothers show, and I had done, I wrote for Andy Griffith on a show that he did, so I did a number of things yeah. before all in the family, but when that came about, I thought, you know, wow, this is, you know, I actually auditioned for it when it was at ABC. They did two pilots at ABC before it went to CBS. And I auditioned. I didn't get the part. Uh, And then when it came to CBS, I went back and and auditioned again. And I guess I had, you know, developed a little bit more and I got the part. And we all thought, you know, this is this is really special stuff. It's it's not going to last very long. You know, people will, you know, it's a great show and we wanted to be part of it. And I thought, you know, we'll do 13 episodes and it'll be gone. <laughs> and that's what we figured. And yeah. then it went on for eight years and over 200 episodes. Amazing. And yeah. now, despite the sort of antagonistic relationship that your character and Carol O'Connor's character had, I understand that he was a very big advocate for you, champion of you, right? Sort of a mentor? Yeah. I mean, uh, Carol, he, he, you know, the, the tone in making the show was set by Norman Lear and Carol O'Connor. Norman Lear... Uh, like to stir things up and and try to get the most out of us. Carol was hell-bent on making it as real as possible and as honest as possible. And I learned from both of them, uh, you know, about pushing myself, pushing the envelope, like they say, and also about making it as real as possible. And I learned from both of them. So Carol, you know, I mean, I did a lot of writing on the show, and uh, Carol always encouraged me. And I became a, a kind of a, a creative element in the show. And that, that was a very, very advantageous thing for me. I learned a lot. And during the years that you were on that show, you were also somehow finding time to, you know, do other things as well, right? Did I read that you had 
worked on Happy Days, our first episode. Well, of Happy, Happy Days, Days, Happy Days was a uh, there was a show called Love American Style, yeah. and they had different you know little sketches, and there was a character that they had on there, and they and and they wanted to expand it and make it into a series. And my writing partner at the time, Phil Mishkin, who we wrote some number of All in the Family episodes, they said, do you want to do this? And, I, you know, I didn't really want to do it all that much. He worked on it. I helped him a little bit. And we came up with a couple of new characters and things. But he basically wrote. And that became ultimately the pilot for what became Happy Days. Amazing. Wow. So via All in the Family, you, over those years, became a much more well-known actor, won two Emmys, were on a trajectory that many people would have envied and yet when it was over it seems like you wanted to run in a very different direction why was that did you feel that you were at risk of being typecast or something or did you just have an urge to do something specific i always wanted to be a director i had my own like i say improv company i directed theater in la i that's what i always wanted to do Mm -hmm. and i didn't think i was going to make a career as an actor i like acting but i never thought that that was going to be my career so the fact that i had to did it for eight years was like oh my god (laughs) and at those days if you were a tv actor you were like a second class citizen you were looked down upon the movie people were the 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 royalty and you were like a peon you know and so you couldn't make that transition now people go back and forth easily but at that time it was very tough and they wanted to give me an enormous amount of money yeah. to play the character that I played on All in the Family as a spinoff yeah. with Sally Struthers and to do just the show about the two of us. And it was an enormous amount of money. And I thought, gee, if I do that, I'll never get to do what I want to do. So I, I, you know, I turned, I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And then it took me four years to get Spinal Tap off the ground because people didn't. They didn't like the idea of a, you know, a TV guy, a TV sitcom guy right. is going to direct films, you know. You know, Ronnie Howard did eventually. Yeah. I mean, he came out of it and Gary Marshall and Jim Brooks and Danny DeVito and Penny Marshall, the all these people, yeah. all these people became uh, directors and I think it was great. And and the transition though within those 4 years, I had read that one of the one of the key things was this TV movie that you did with Penny Marshall to, to in terms of showing that you could Handle directing is that well? I I, I produced that. I produced. You know that. that that movie was called More Than Friends, and it was yeah. it was directed by uh, Jim Burrows, right? Uh, wow. Who's a great great television director yeah. who directed the pilots for every you know <laughs> every big hit show that yeah. you know about, and is wealthier than anybody we know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, right. he directed. Jim Burrows directed it, and it was funny because it's Abe Burrows' son. And who's a very famous Broadway director who directed Guys and Dolls and all this stuff. And every morning I would say, it's, I, it's Abe's boy. And he'd say, it's Carl's kid. <laughs> We'd always say that That's to great. each other. Abe's boy and Carl's kid. So this is Spinal Tap, your, your feature directorial debut. Today we're all used to mockumentaries. At the time, I don't think there had really been anything like that. And so for you, was it just an opportunity to direct, or was that something you were particularly excited to direct? Well, I mean, you know, it basically, you know, whatever film you're making takes whatever form it's supposed to take. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were satirizing rock and roll documentaries. So that was the idea behind the film. So we knew that we were, we didn't intend to create a genre. Right, right, right. It's just, that's what we were, you know, that's what we intended to do, just satirize a rock and roll documentary. And did you have any expectation that it would, could possibly resonate to the degree that it has? I mean, you never know. Yeah. You never know. And and certainly when it came out, we didn't think so because people didn't understand it. They think <laughs> people would come up to me and say, why would you make a movie about some, some a band that nobody's ever heard of <laughs> and one that's so bad? I mean, why would you do right. that? And, right. and I would say it's a satire thing and they didn't get it. So, well, You've sort of indicated in other interviews that, in your view, your directorial career didn't really start until the films after that because you've said, quote, I love the idea of making movies that kids and adults can go to together and both get something out of it, close quote. And that certainly applied going forward. But that you've said you think Stand By Me was was really the first one that you kind of claim real ownership over. Well, the, the, the Stand By Me, I mean, I, you know, obviously I make the other films as well, but I mean... For me, Stand By Me was important because it was the first time I was making a film that really reflected my sensibility and my personality. It had 
humor in it. It had melancholy in it. It had a dramatic element to it, and it blended those things. And so I felt like that's the kind of film I like to make, you know, and I, and if the people like it, yeah. then, then maybe it'll encourage me. If they don't, then I don't know what I'm going to do because satire, which I right. love, right. I love satire, but it's not something I, you know, it's just a part of me, you right. know. It's not like everything I'd like to do. Right. And my father had trafficked in satire, you know, with Show of Shows in the Caesars Hour. Right. The first movie I made after uh, Spinal Tap was a sure thing, and that was a, a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. And my father had made some romantic comedy. So this was, with Stand By, was the first time I felt like, okay, I'm really, you know, establishing my own identity and personality yeah. with a film. And it almost didn't happen, right? I mean, my understanding was that originally they had they were planning to go with Adrian Lyne that and then also in terms of just even getting the property, I think people had been trying forever, right? Well, it was bought by Embassy and it was developed there uh, by Ray Gideon and Bruce Evans from based on a short story from the book called Different Seasons. Mm-hmm. It was a, a short story called The Body mm-hmm. and uh, same actually same collection of short stories that Shawshank Redemption came out. It was yeah. called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. And they developed it and it was being developed for uh, Adrian Lyne, like you said, to direct it. And he had just finished up this movie called Nine and a Half Weeks. He was kind of tired. He didn't really... He said, I don't know if I want to do this and blah, blah, blah. And so two friends of mine who were involved in producing it showed it to me as something that maybe, uh, you know, to help us out. We think it's good writing, but we don't think it's focused and we don't know what the focus should be. And so I looked at it and I thought, well, I don't know. It is great writing, but maybe uh, maybe I can figure out a way to do it. So I took it on and I didn't really have the answer when I took it on. And it wasn't. And I get, get kept getting these migraine headaches. <laughs> thinking, I don't know, how am I going to get this thing done? And and then when I hit on the idea that Gordy was going to be the main character, yeah. because in the in the short story, he was kind of just an observer. And once I made him the main character and that he was the one that was going through the biggest struggle with identity vis-a-vis his father and his brother who he had lost, then it the, the picture, the film took shape. And two days before we were shooting, we were up in Oregon. We had the, every, the cast, the crew, everybody. We were two days away from shooting. The company was sold to Coca-Cola. This is Avco Embassy. Avco, uh, it was Embassy Pictures at the time. Me, yeah. Was sold to Columbia, yeah. Coca-Cola, and that was it. They didn't want it. They didn't want the film, and it was we lost all of our financing oh two days before shooting. And so I was like, "Oh my God, what the heck are we going to do?" And so Norman Lear, thank thank God, Norman Lear stepped up and said, "I will finance the picture," and he put his own money in. He had been. Embassy, right? Yeah, he had owned Embassy. He just didn't think they, that well, Columbia would chuck the picture. Well, right? they, yeah. I mean, Columbia shut it down. And so and he said, then digs into his own, own pocket and says, I'm seven and a half million. Seven and a half million dollars. Yeah. Wow. But he got paid back. Yeah, I, I imagine so. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. They say, you know, w, supposedly according to W.C. Fields, the two worst things you can do are work with animals and work with children. Yeah. And yet you had such tremendous results with these kids and they really credit that to you and here's a Jerry O'Connell quote quote Rob was so great with with the kids he was like the fifth boy in Stand By Me for the first two weeks we didn't say a line we didn't rehearse he locked us in a room and we just played games and hung out and we became friends close quote what was is that the key with just making these guys comfortable yes yeah what I did was you know in the case of Jerry O'Connell he had never acted before and the other guys except for Corey Feldman, there was very little experience. What I did was, uh, my background is is improvisation, and there was a great Bible of improvisational theater called Improvisation for the Theater by Viola Spolin, who was the mother of Paul Sills, who created Second City and the Compass Players and Nichols and May and all that. And I basically had been steeped in all that, and I basically gave them an acting class. And we spent weeks, you know, just playing theater games getting used to each other, learning how to relate to each other, how to connect to each other. And then we approached the material. So by the time we were on the set and ready to shoot, they had become a unit. They yeah. had become a real, a real, uh, you know, four-person unit. That's amazing. So I guess the scary moment for any filmmaker who's adapting somebody else's work must be when that person sees the work. For you, what was, what was Stephen King's reaction? Well, we had a moment that is very much like a moment that's in Annie Hall, and I'll explain what happened. <laughs> we, we finished the film, and we were going to show it to Stephen King. 
and Stephen King, we, it was just the four of us, me, Andy, uh, Ray and Bruce, and Stephen King. And watched the movie, and then after the movie is over, I'm so nervous because this was the most personal film of his. This was really about what had happened. He had actually been on that journey to see that body. He had actually gotten those leeches on his balls wow. and all that stuff. <laughs> and so he was very, you know, I was very nervous about how he would react. And after the movie was over, he said, can you just excuse me for a few minutes and I'll come. And he went away and I thought, oh my God, you know, <laughs> he didn't like it, whatever. He comes back and he says, I have never seen a movie of any of my material that was as good as this one. This is the best thing I've ever seen of anything that's been made out of my material. And then he says, it's not saying much, but, you know, because <laughs> well, he wasn't uh, too happy with a lot right, of it. Right, a lot of the others. But the point is he loved it. And yeah. then we had argued, uh, Ray and Bruce and Andy and I had argued during the writing of it. And when I made Gordy the focus of the movie, in the book, it's, it's River Phoenix's yeah. character, Chris, who picks up the gun, to face down the older boys, the yeah, Kiefer, yeah. Kiefer Sutherland and the older boys. But Andy Scheinman in the room came up with the idea of having Gordy pick up the gun because it was about Gordy coming into his own as a, as a boy, you know, as turning a man, becoming a man. Yeah. And so I said, Andy, that's great. That's great. I love it. <laughs> and the boy, and Ray and Bruce, no, no, you can't have that. It's in the book. He's got to be. We argued, argued back and right. forth. So then Stephen King, after saying how much he loves it, he says, I got to tell you, so sometimes I see things in a movie and I hate what they've done because they changed it or whatever. He said, but every once in a while you see something and you say, why didn't I think of that? He says, when you had Gordy pick up that gun, I thought, wow, that was so much better than what I had. <laughs> what and it was like that moment in Annie Hall when yeah. he says, I've got Marshall McLuhan <laughs> right here. You know nothing of my yeah, work. You, yeah. Exactly. And I said to Ray, have a Ray. Oh, that's Marshall great. McLuhan. That's awesome. So you didn't really give yourself a break because the next project, you're, you're now taking somebody else's most beloved work, right? With, right? with Princess Bride. What was the process there of just even, A, getting involved where the script had been kicking around for a long time. Everybody knew it was good, but nobody could do it, right? Right. So now you take it on, and you've got to get Goldman's blessing? Yeah, no, this was, uh, you know, I was kind of naive about the whole thing because after I'd made the first two films, I, I and, you know, at the time, I was going to make Stand By Me, you know, but I hadn't made Stand By Me yet. I thought, you know, they make movies out of books. Why wouldn't I do that? Right. And I and I thought back to what my favorite book of all time was, which was The Princess Bride. I loved the book. I'd read virtually everything that William Goldman had ever written. And when I read that book, which my father gave to me because uh, William Goldman tried to get my father to direct it and uh -huh. be involved in it because he met my father during a time during I think it was a season 1968 or something mm -hmm, like that mm -hmm. and my dad had a play on Broadway and, yeah. and Bill Goldman wrote a book oh, called, this, book. called yeah. The Season yeah, yeah. and my dad they had a chapter about my dad's play in that and so he, when Goldman finished the the book he gave it to my dad and he says I you know he said I don't know what to do with I wouldn't do and I was a young guy I was in my 20s he right. said you like William Goldman why don't you read this book you know I read it. This, Like I said, I was in my 20s. Yeah, I was yeah, doing yeah. All the Family. I wasn't even thinking about making a movie. Right. I just read it, and I went, it's like the guy was in my head. Wow. It's if I could write, this is the way I would write something. Right. And, and he did this thing, and I was like, wow. So then now I'm making movies. I thought, you know, what about The Princess Bride? Not knowing right. that... 15 years they've been trying to get this thing off the ground. They had Francois Truffaut was involved. <laughs> Robert Redford was right. involved. Norman Jewison was involved. You know, they had all these different people. And I, and it was one of the great, you know, and then Cahiers du Cinema had it yeah. as one of the 15 greatest screenplays that never was produced. Wow. And so I thought, you know, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll do this. Right. So I contact William Goldman's agent, and William Goldman says, he had he went to see Spinal Tap, which was in the theaters at the time, mm -hmm. and then I sent him a rough cut of the Sure Thing, which was not even mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. And he looked at that, and then based on that, he agreed to have a meeting with me. So now <laughs> I, was just I go getting in the door yeah. just to get in the door. <laughs> so now I go with Andy, my partner. We go to his apartment on East Seventy First Street, and he opens the door and he says, "The Princess Bride." 
is the my favorite thing I've ever written in my life. <laughs> I want it on my tombstone. Oh man! And basically, he was saying, "What are you going to do?" Right, with it? right. So he takes us into his little den. We sit down. And I start telling him what I think should be done and, and the screenplays and what was wrong with the screenplays that had been written. And basically, I'm going back to more of what was in his book. And he's just taking down notes. He's not saying anything. At one point, he gets up to go to the kitchen to get something to drink. And I, I look at Andy and I said, Jesus, I don't know. I mean, I hope he, I don't know if he's buying this or not. He comes back in and he has this high squeaky voice and he says, he says, well, I just think this is going great. <laughs> and I went, oh, my God. And he basically gave us the... Ooh, and I, I remember walking out of the apartment. I was like walking on air. I couldn't right. believe it. The guy who I admired so much, Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid. Yeah. The, the, you know, the, the, all the president's men, the, you know, marathon men. Yeah. I know all the books I read. Here he was letting me uh, go and do this. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. was amazing. And I, I believe, as with Stand By Me, you initially went to... Dreyfus to be a part of this? Not to be a part of Princess Bride. No, no I asked him about Misery. Oh, uh, okay. I so asked that was him, a... Oh, I also asked him for When Harry Met Sally. I asked oh, him to God. play a part in that. <laughs> and for a minute, he actually thought about doing it. Well, these are he, he missed out on a few. Yeah. But now this was a, a, a not an instant smash. Today, we people flipping out still about Princess Bride, but at the time, they were a little slow to catch on, right? Yeah, same as Spinal Tap, same as Spinal Tap. The, the picture did okay, you know, when it came out. It yeah. made its money back. I mean, it did okay, but it wasn't, you know, a kind of the hit that it right, became. Right. And people, you know, they, they I think the title hurt us, you know. I think people, the Princess Bride, you know, the best screening we ever had was at college campus. And we never got one college kid to ever go see the movie when it was in the theaters <laughs> because it was like a princess. It's like, you know, girly right, kind of right, thing. Right. And bride, it's like a baby <laughs> fairy tale kind of thing right. that you know, my little kid sister or brother would go to, not something I would go. So it took a long time for people to catch on to Interesting. It. Well, I believe the same year that that came out, you co-founded with... Alan Horn, Martin Schaefer, Andrew Scheinman, and Glenn Padnick, Castle Rock Entertainment. Right, 1987. Why did that come about? Why was it called Castle Rock? It's it's obviously become a big part of your you know legacy. I think. Yeah. Well, it it started with Andy Scheinman and I deciding we wanted to start a little film company. We talked to uh, Martin Schaefer, who's a friend of ours, who was at the time working at 20th Century Fox as an executive. We asked him to join, but at the same time, Alan Horn who was over at Fox, yeah. was thinking about breaking away. And he asked Martin also, maybe we'll start a little company. So we said, well, why don't we all pool our resources? And then we all agreed because we all knew each other. Yeah, yeah. And then Alan brought in a guy named Glenn Padnick to do television because we were initially thinking just features. Yeah. And then when he brought in Glenn, Glenn Padnick, we said, okay, we'll make a television and film company. So the five of us got together. We had all friends. Right. And Castle Rock was the name of the town in in Stand By Me and the name of the town that Stephen King uses for many of yeah, his yeah. books. And you guys have ended up encompassing a lot of things, including Seinfeld and so many right, others. So right. when Harry met Sally, I've got to ask you, during the making of that, I believe you met your wife. And I understand also that that sort of changed the the nature of the project. It did. It did, because the film came out uh, as a result of me being single for 10 years after having been married for 10 years and not couldn't figure out I was making a complete mess of my personal life right. and that's what gave birth to the film and uh, I didn't fig I couldn't figure out how I was ever going to be with anybody again so at the end of the movie we had Harry and Sally kind of going their separate ways and so during the making of the movie in pre-production I'm looking at uh, with Barry Sonnenfeld who was the DP at the time uh, there's a copy of uh, Premier Magazine sitting in the th in the office, and uh, there's a picture of Michelle Pfeiffer on the cover of Premier Magazine. I said, "Well, you know, you know, I'd met her like six months ago with a professional meeting or something, and she seemed like a nice person." And I said, "Maybe I should give her a call." I'm like grasping at straws. <laughs> I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And he says, "No, no, no. You're not gonna you're not gonna call her." She, he says, "I have a friend in New York. Her name is Michelle Singer. You're gonna marry her." I said, "Who is she? I don't know." Uh, and, you know, to make a long story short, she shows up on the set one day. Right. And I didn't know who it was. 
And she was with uh, Barry Sonnenfeld's now wife, who was right. his girlfriend at the time. And I said, who's that? And he says, that's Michelle Singer. And I said, wow, that's her. You know, she's wearing this kind of sweater. She looked like one of the bees from the SNL sketch, you know, the, the bees. that they. And I, But I was attracted to her. And we right. went to lunch, and I was attracted to her and started seeing each other during that time. And seven months later, we get married. There you go. But it was during that time that I thought, okay, I get it. I see how people can... Right. Be together, and so we change the ending to where they get together at the end. And there's one other very personal element of that film, which is the person who delivers the the line that has been chosen as one of the, I think, ten greatest of all time by the American yeah. Film Institute. For people who may not know, I, some people don't know this. The context. Can you share who who says I'll have what she's having? Well, that's my mother. <laughs> that's my mother, and it's a line that Billy Crystal came up with. We had this scene where we were going to have Meg Ryan fake the orgasm because the idea was that uh, she was going to show men something that they didn't know about what women did. And this is something that we, you know, we found out that was as true. And uh, so Billy came up with that line. And I told my mother, you know, uh, you know, we got a funny scene. I don't know if that's going to be the, if that's right. not the topper, if that's the, not the big button in the scene, I, mean, I have to cut it. Right. She said, it's all right. I don't care. You know, I'll come down there and Katz's Deli, hang out for a day with you and I'll have a hot dog. And, you know, turns out it's, you know, it's like you say, it's one of the top five lines of, of mo in movie history, That's along great. with, you know, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, I could have been a contender or whatever. Right. You got Brando and you got Clark Gable and Estelle Reiner. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. So the next year you decided to do something very different than anything you'd done before, I think, with Misery, which was just in terms of genre. Yes, you'd moved around genres, but this was darker then, I mean, you were, you seem to be, to me, I would say, a very sunny person to then go and well, do something where you'd, you're... You'd be wrong. Maybe wrong. Okay, all right. <laughs> no, no, well, no. But to then be breaking people's knees, that was yeah. a big... Leap. Yeah, well, it wasn't the knee, it was the ankle. Oh, the ankle, excuse yeah, me, the yeah, ankle. the ankle, yeah. 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 No, I mean, <laughs> you know, what drew me to it, and, you know, we, at, at Castle Rock, we've made uh, seven movies out of Stephen King books, and we usually choose, I mean, in a couple of cases, like Needful Things and uh, Dreamcatcher, we chose uh, more of his uh, supernatural kind of things. But most part, they're character-driven, like in Shawshank Redemption or Dolores Claiborne or, you mm -hmm. know, Hearts in Atlantis. And certainly in, you know, Stand By Me and Misery, it was more character-driven. Mm -hmm. And I related to it because I knew what it felt like to be trapped by success mm -hmm. and, and not be able to break out and do what you wanted to do. Coming out of all of that. Yeah, and, yeah. and not being a, you know, not getting to be a director. So mm -hmm. I understood what that character was going through. And like, I love thrillers. I've never, I had never made one, yep. but I love them. I mean, right. to me, a good thriller is like the most satisfying movie to watch if they're really good, right. you know, if they're really done well. And so, I said, okay, let's uh, let's see if we can take this on. And Stephen King basically sold us the rights to the book. It was also a very personal book for him because he also likes to write other kinds of things, and he has published many right. things not under his name, right. you know, because he didn't want a, people to be upset by a certain <laughs> kind of thing. And so, you know, he gave us the option to to do it, and he said he would only do it if I would agree to either produce it or direct it, right. because he liked what we did with Stand by Me. So. You know, we got involved, and uh, then I started uh, thinking about it, and I thought, yeah, I could do this, but I got to learn the grammar of of film noir, of yeah, of yeah. Uh, you know thrillers, and so I watched every Hitchcock film, I watched everything yeah. that I could get my hands on, just to understand, you know, how do you how do you put these kind of films right. together? And it worked out. You got you directed somebody to an Oscar. That's not yeah, many people yeah, can say. Yeah, Kathy that. Bates, she's unbelievable. In yeah. It. So a few good men. I believe you were looking for somebody to write the movie Malice. Right, right. And end up with basically bringing to the movies Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, Aaron Sorkin had written the play Few Good Men, and we were looking for a writer for a thriller that we were doing called yeah. Malice that was with Nicole Kidman and Alec Baldwin and Bill Pullman. Mm -hmm. And they sent us a copy of the play Few Good Men as a writing sample. And it's brilliant writing, yeah. obviously. And so we hired Aaron, who was under the tutelage of William Goldman, oh, really? to help you know work on on Malice. But in the meantime, I look at this play and I think, Jesus, you know, I went we went to New York and looked at it in New York, and I thought, Wow, what about this? Why mm -hmm. can't we make a movie out of this? And again, I related to it because 
it was a, a, a young lawyer whose father had been a very successful lawyer, and he had never really tested himself because yeah, he had yeah, plea, yeah. plea bargained all these cases. <laughs> and this was about him emerging right. as his own man in the courtroom, you know? Right. And I thought, okay, I could get with this story. <laughs> and then it was owned by TriStar, and we were able to get TriStar to, to give it to us. And now I you, mean, not give it to us, but they sold, sold it. Sold it, right. Now, yeah. now, you did something on that that I don't know if anybody's ever done since, which is that you rewrote Aaron Sorkin, right? Yeah. I mean, I want to read a quote. This is a New York Times, December 1992 piece. Quote, According to Mr. Sorkin, the drama, which received mixed reviews when it was on Broadway but ran for more than a year, was almost entirely overhauled for the movie. The smoking gun in the Broadway play, a doctored logbook, was eliminated from the film. Mr. Reiner apparently felt that with a smoking gun, you didn't need a brilliant lawyer. Instead, he wanted the character of Caffey to be cunning. Under Mr. Reiner's supervision, Mr. Sorkin wrote several drafts of the screenplay in his New York apartment and then spent several months at the Los Angeles offices of Castle Rock, the independent production company that made the film. There, Mr. Sorkin worked with Mr. Reiner. So, you, I mean, those are major contributions, major changes that I don't know if you've ever been really properly uh, recognized for, for making. Well, you know something? Aaron Sorkin's a brilliant writer. Right. He doesn't need my help, you know. Right. He can do what he needs to do. But we did plug up some of the holes, uh, some of the holes that were in the play and in the film sometimes, you know, when you're in a theater, you can get swept away by the, you know, live performance and you're not really thinking. In a film, people will scrutinize things a little bit more carefully. And so we did plug up some of the plot holes. And he did say when, you know, I remember when we came up with this idea of putting these, you know, it wasn't enough to just get Jessup to break on the stand. We had to figure out a way, a cunning way to right, break him. And right. he put those two airmen yeah. in the back who weren't there. But, right. you know, it, it tricked him into thinking that there was some evidence that he had doctored the logbook, that he <laughs> right. had done all that right. stuff. And Aaron, when we did that, he said, oh, no. I said, what do you mean, oh, no? He said, well, that's too bad. He said, now I got to go change my play. <laughs> He said, because this is so much better. And then he actually went and rewrote his play for the National Touring wow. Company, which I'd never heard of, a play that was successful that was going to tour. Well, and it sounds like he wasn't too precious because three years later you guys are doing The American President. So yeah, yeah. You guys, I mean, it, it, he appreciated good suggestions. Yeah, no, we, we, we worked uh, worked on that, and, and and that became the base, you know, the, the basis uh, for The West Wing. Right. And it was, you know, Aaron wrote so much. I mean, we were hundreds and hundreds of pages right. on on the American present, which we didn't use. A right. lot of that he was able to be able, you know, seen certainly that he was able to use for the West Wing. Right. I was here at, at TIFF last year and sat a row behind you when you unveiled a very, probably your most personal movie, Being Charlie. And I encourage people to check it out. But I also think that it seems like from, from interviews you gave a, around a, the time of that, that Part of the reason maybe your you worked a little more sporadically or or whatever in the in the starting maybe in the late nineties was that you were dealing with a lot of other things starting right. around then right and just leading into being Charlie, which again is extremely powerful and personal for you, I just wonder to some extent if you can contextualize what I'm talking about for people that haven't seen it well in the in the nineties in the late nineties that's not the basis for being Charlie that happened you know, with uh, Michelle and my son, Nick, when he was a teenager, and that was more in the, in the, let's see, he was born in 93, so that was 2007 yeah, sure, and whatever. But in the late 90s, I got very involved in, in uh, politics mm -hmm. and in government, and I, uh, I passed a piece of legislation in California that added 50 cents a pack to tobacco, the money which would go to funding early childhood programs. And I was asked by the governor at that time, Gray Davis, to oversee the state commission. And I did that for seven years. Wow. So during that period, I was very focused on work on early childhood and other things, uh, you know, politically. And then I did, you know, I think I did one or two films mm -hmm. during that period. But then after that, and I got started getting back into it. But, you know, it's interesting that the, the world changed quite mm -hmm. a bit. So studios were no longer making the kinds of movies that I wanted to make. As a matter of fact, they never made any of the kinds of movies I wanted to make. Right. <laughs> so then I'm now in a position where I have to look for independent financing for right. everything. And was that sort of jarring, disillusioning to see that even somebody with as 
incredible track record as the one we've been discussing that even you should have to deal with an uphill climb to get a project off the ground. It but seems I think insane. Every, I think everybody has that. I mean, you know, I, I was I played a part in this movie Wolf of Wall Street yeah, a couple of great. years ago, and you know there there was Martin Scorsese and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. And for six years, they couldn't get financing for that movie, and no studio would finance it. And they finally got this company, Red Granite, and right. eventually was distributed by Paramount. But everybody struggles. Right. I mean, it's if, if you want to make a movie that doesn't fit into their mold, and right. I make this joke all the time, but it's true, it's got to have the, na- the word man and a number <laughs> in the title. You know, it's it's Iron right. Man 3, right. Right. Batman 7, Nine. Superman, yeah. Spider-Man right. 12. I mean, a man and a number, if you don't right. have that or you're not making an R-rated right. sex comedy right. or something, then they don't want it. And so for you, what made it worth the the aggravation and the challenge and all of that to get being Charlie made was what? So that other people could learn from the things that you had experienced as a family? No, I, you don't go about it for that reason. You go about it because... You know the 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 stuff is an extension of yourself. I mean, you're working artistically. You want to somehow just express yourself, you know. Right. And what are the things you're thinking about? What are the things you're feeling? And you want to express yourself. And this was a chance to work with my son, who firsthand had experienced all these things. And he, you know, I mean, it was tough. It was tough. Don't get don't these get me wrong. It was very emotional, and, yeah. very difficult, but ultimately, uh, I think, creatively, very satisfying and beautiful movie. And and that leads us to the movie that I just saw this morning and congratulate you about. It's LBJ. It's at a time about I guess roughly a half century after his era in power, and there's a lot of interest in him. A lot of people are trying to tell his story. This does it. In a, in a different way than anything else I've seen. And I just wonder for you, why for your 19th feature was it appealing to you to go back to a political, politically themed movie in the White House and about this particular individual? Well, you know, I read the, the, the script was uh, given to me by two of my partners at Castle Rock who had heard about it. And they said, we don't know if you'd be interested in this, but, you know, there's this really good script. You should read it. And I thought... LBJ, I don't really want to make a movie about LBJ because when I was a young person, LBJ, I hated him. I mean, he was, I was of draft age during that right, period. Right. And, and he was a, a you know, the, the, he was the devil. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, you know, he could send me to my death. I didn't want to have any, anything to do with him. But I read it and I thought, you know something? I am now looking at this guy through a different prism because now I've been in government. I've been in politics. I've been involved with public policy and getting things done. And I had a very different view of what Lyndon Johnson was able to accomplish. And I thought, had it not been for the Vietnam War, he would have gone down as one of the great presidents mm-hmm. of all time. Uh, and what he did for the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and Medicaid and Medicare and uh, Head Start and all these programs. And I thought, yeah, maybe there is something to do here because the person is so much more complex yeah. than what I had initially thought of him. And so we set about trying to make him human, you know, and show all sides of him. And Woody Harrelson is insane. He's off the charts how good he is. Absolutely. And that's what I was going to ask next is just he maybe is not the obvious choice here because his, I think a lot of people still associate him with comedy, although he's done great dramatic work. But And he doesn't necessarily naturally look like LBJ. And yet you thought of him for this part. What was it that sold you on the idea that he could do it? Well, he's a great actor. Mm-hmm. First of all, I wanted some a Texan yeah. uh, who understood that sensibility. But I also wanted somebody who was who had humanity. I mean, you know, you tend to think of LBJ in in a, in very kind of two-dimensional terms like he was a, you know, a, an aggressive legislator who twisted arms and got his way, was very persuasive and mean and all this stuff. But he also had a very human, insecure side to him. He felt unloved at many times. And I love the idea of Woody Harrelson, who has a sense of humor, yeah. to be able to inject his humanity into a very complex character. So while we wait for the, I mean, this this movie is going to, 
sell in the in the very near future and maybe come out this year? Is it your hope that it comes out this year? I don't think it'll be able to come out no. this year because yep. when, when once we have a distributor, you know, you have to build a, a marketing a campaign. campaign and a distribution plan and all of that, and that'll take some time. Right. So it it'll come out next year sometime, hopefully. Yeah, terrific. Yeah. Well, as the final thing, I hope just very briefly I can ask you just big picture, very quick things. You've worked on, I think, all of your films up until flipped in 2010 with the same film editor, Robert Layden. How did that come about? Why was, how did that shape your movies? Well, I mean, it's like, it's an incredibly intimate uh, creative relationship. And Bob was the f- guy who, sh- who cut Spinal Tap. And he was, he came to us because he had cut a lot of documentaries for the BBC. Mm-hmm. He was British and he was really smart and we hit it off right away. Right. We got along great. So, we kept working together right. and I've made this, this, I've said this before, but I spent more time in the dark with him than I have with my wife. <laughs> I mean, you know, because right. of so many years right. in, in the darkened room in that cutting right, room of course. that uh, you better be close to somebody, you better be comfortable with somebody. Right. And, and so that was, that was it. And right. then he's a big time to film you know, editor now. Right. I can't afford <laughs> And now, additionally, you mentioned acting in The Wolf of Wall Street. You've also, through the time you've been a director, acted in Throw Mama from the Train, Sleepless in Seattle, Bullets Over Broadway, First Wives Club, Primary Colors, Ed TV, New Girl, and on and on and on. Do you still enjoy going and acting yeah, once in a while? I do. I do. I like it because there's no responsibility. You just show up and you have a good time. Somebody else has all the headaches. They worry about stuff. I mean, I've told this story many times, but when I was asked to do Ed TV, you know, Ron Howard calls up and says, you know, I got this part, you know, you want to, you want to read the script and see if there's something you want to do. I said, I'll do it. Right. He said, you don't want to read the script? I said, I don't have to read the script. I said, yeah. if it stinks, it's not my fault. You're the one who's doing it. You know, right, I'll just right. be the actor. Right. Yeah. And and being, as a director, being directed by Scorsese and something, is that kind of a strange experience to see how somebody else who's obviously so well-respected also does it? Yeah, and everybody does it differently. Yeah. Woody Allen does it differently. Yeah. Everybody does it differently. So that's fun to get to see how other people do it. I right. mean, Ronnie Howard and I are pretty similar really? in, in certain ways, but everybody works differently. Last two things, how's your father? He's good, thanks. Yeah. He's good. He's, he's 94 years old. He writes every day. He's got a book that's just coming out. He's on called, Twitter. Called My Life at 94. Right. And uh, he walks around the block every day, hangs out with Mel Brooks every night. They watch a movie. They eat dinner. That's great. And, uh, you know, he's doing good. Well, you got great, great genes. And then yeah. the last thing is, I'm hoping you can give a reassuring answer here, but I want your honest answer. Who is going to win this presidential election, the gal that Meathead would have voted for or the guy that Archie would have voted for? Well, I'm, I'm rooting for the gal that Meathead would yes. have voted for, and I believe she will win. Okay. I think at the end of the day, the American public will be smart enough to see that they're not going to vote for a con man and a, and a person who has right. lied to them about virtually everything he said and who's racist and misogynistic and all those things. Right. I think hopefully uh, the, the American people will be able to see through that. Right. Well, congrats on LBJ again, and thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having me, Scott. Absolutely. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anytime anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.